this is the last of our sermons uh, for this year on following Jesus, our Harmony of the Gospel sermon series. Um, next week, we're going to talk about giving to grow, because uh, what's going to happen this week is our bathrooms will be open, uh, hopefully, praise God, hallelujah, yeah, so you can clap for that. Um, we'll all be glad to use bathrooms indoors again that are nice and new and everything. You can kind of peek around the box and see that they're repairing some drywall that they messed up with the tile and other things, but that's okay. That's going to get done this week. So that's going to be done next week. We're going to talk about give and grow. We're going to talk about faith. We're going to talk about vision for our church. So that'll be good things. Two weeks from today, Pastor Dallas Powell will be teaching us uh, about who's your one, kind of a preview sermon for my October sermon series about evangelism and sharing our faith with people that are lost around us. And then you've got the four sermons in Jonah. Uh, you've got the invite cards for that out there and social media and all that sort of stuff. And then who's your one in October? And then first Sunday in November, Pastor Matt Colbertson will be back. Uh, Patty is doing the ladies retreat and he's going to preach on Sunday morning. So that'll be pretty cool. So all that's ahead of us. But today we need to land here with following Jesus and the empty tomb. And I've asked you to turn already to John chapter 20, asked you by what you see in your bulletin. Verses 1 through 10 will be our key text, John 20, 1 through 10. But let me start out by reading to us out of 1 Corinthians. And if you want to write that down, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 and following. Now we'll come back to John as our key text in a minute, but we've got to lay a longer than average introduction here today, and that begins us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul looking back at the meaning of Jesus' resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. Write that down, and you can follow along if you're fast enough to flip there right now. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can you say? That there is no resurrection of the dead. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is unless uh, our preaching is un- useless, and so is your faith. More than that, when uh, we are then found to be false witnesses of, about God, for we have witnessed about God that He raised Christ from the dead, but He did not raise Him. If in fact The dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. The Apostle Paul looks back at what it means to have a bodily resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is, first of all, the hinge point of Christianity. It's the foundation of Christianity, of the church, of the fact that we worship on Sunday, of Christian colleges, seminaries, hospitals, agencies, nonprofits, the proclamation of the gospel that God sent His one and only Son to live His life sinlessly and die as a sacrificial death for all who would ever believe in Him as a gracious offer of forgiveness of sins. All these things are empty without the resurrection of Jesus. Christianity is an empty shell. And that's the first of the ideas I want to give us by means of introduction. The second is this, that granted the resurrection accounts in the gospel 
may not convince the unconvinced. The resurrection accounts in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all told slightly differently from their different perspectives and their different purposes in writing, may not convince the unconvinced. But those who are committed to a rationalistic perspective or a philosophical suspicions, they're not apologetic in their nature. The four Gospels aren't. And we're not seeking to do that this morning. That's not my purpose to convince the unconvinced. The resurrection is that the resurrection is rationally and scientifically possible. We're not going to delve into those details. We're going to follow what John says in his Gospels and focus on what John says and touch back to these other ideas. The third thought for us by means of introduction this morning is this. Though we mention varied details of other gospel accounts, that our goal today is not a detailed harmony of the four gospel accounts. We've got to be mindful of the theological purpose of each gospel writer. And, but they aren't mere history books either. They're books written about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, the most unique person to ever live. The fourth starting point for us today is that 30 and 31, write down that reference, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. He said, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. And I love verse 31, John 20, 31. You need to memorize this one. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why did John write his book? So that you and I, every reader ever of his book, would believe. And I've got a fifth and final point by means of introduction, and that's a little bit of perspective on how John wrote his book. That's that John wrote his gospel from a post-resurrection perspective. What do we mean there and how do we understand that? John 2.22. Write down that reference as well. John chapter 2, verse 22. It says, after he was raised from the dead, the disciples recalled that he had said, they, then they believed the scripture in the words that Jesus has spoken. Even early in the Gospel of John, John chapter 2, John is saying, when he said this way back here, we didn't understand it. It wasn't until after he rose from the grave that we understood that all the things he said in his ministry would come true. Their faith wasn't complete until after the resurrection. So with these five starting points, to help frame up or give us some boundaries for our understanding today, I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word as we read John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. John chapter 20, verse 1 through 10. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. Verse 3. So Peter and the other disciple started to the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went in the tomb. He saw the strips lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Verse 8, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Verse 10, then the disciples went back to their homes. Pray with me. 
God, our Father, we know that the scripture today is momentous. It is a hinge point, a foundation of all Christianity. That the bodily resurrection of Jesus means everything to who we are and what we believe. And it's our prayer that you would bring to our minds understanding and bring to our hearts conviction today, even as we consider this. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. So let's look back in John, our scripture of the month. Our scripture of the month is on your bulletin at the top. And that'll come up on the screen here in a minute. You can read it from your bulletin or the screen, which is ever is easier for your, you. And let's say that together. John eleven twenty five through 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? John eleven twenty five through 26. When Pastor David shared John three sixteen, he was emphasizing that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that loving is giving. But remember the next part? That whoever believes in him should not perish. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But John 20, 31 said, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And look at what it says right here. Jesus himself speaking. Everyone who believes in me will never die. The purpose of the book of John is that we, the readers, might believe who Jesus is. The gospel of John is a declaration of Jesus' victory. That he's defeated God's enemies. And he is the king of kings. And the Lord of lords. And here we see. In the testimony in the eyes of three different individuals. A look at the discovery that Jesus had resurrected from the tomb. So the first point on your outline is the first of those individuals. And that's Mary Magdalene. That she was startled in need of assurance. Startled was the best word I could come up with. There's some others you might use. Um, but startled is what I thought when I read this. Look back at your key text with me and we'll walk through. She was startled in need of assurance. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. She went to the tomb early in the first morning of the week. Now, you're immediately going, hey, wait, Pastor Aaron, last week we uh, looked from another gospel, and yeah, remember three different uh, or four different gospel accounts. Mark says that there were three women. Matthew says there were two women. Luke says there were three women plus others. So we know there was at least five women who went to the tomb. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, maybe the wife of James, probably the mother of James, uh, and then Joanna and Salome are named in the gospel, so at least five women. So why is it then that John focuses on Mary Magdalene? Turn your eyes to verse 11, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. There's this conversation Jesus has with Mary Magdalene from verse 11 to verse 18, that John is setting that up. He's doing like a good modern storyteller would do. You know, when you read a chapter book or you read a novel or something like that, you're introduced to one character in this chapter, and then you're introduced to a second character in the second chapter, and you're smart enough to know that sooner or later the characters are going to interweave, right? 
Well, we already know who Mary Magdalene is. Jesus has already met her. We've heard about her. But John is interweaving these stories again. So it's not that he doesn't care about or that the other ladies weren't there. It's that he's writing with a purpose, and that purpose is belief, and that purpose is going to be heightened by the story of Mary Magdalene. So you've got a first question there. And that first question is what might have happened to Jesus? What might have happened to Jesus? She gets there and she sees the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, Jesus loved, that's John, the evangelist who wrote this gospel. He doesn't name himself, but once he generally refers to himself there as the other disciple or the beloved disciple. And he says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. So what do you think was Mary Magdalene's conclusion about what happened to Jesus? Not your conclusion, because you know the rest of the story. It was hers. Somebody robbed his body from the tomb. Somebody, whether they meant it for good or no good, took Jesus away. And she's confused, and she's hurt. And it wasn't that they were faking the resurrection because of the defeatism here that follows with Jesus' disciples. And not to mention, that'd be like the greatest conspiracy theory ever. So the only possibility, as Jesus' disciples understood, was that his body had been taken, that someone had stolen him from the grave. But that begs the next question. Who? Who could have taken Jesus? Well, let's think about that. If the Romans took Jesus, why would they have taken Jesus? I mean, it wouldn't do them any good. It would prove the point of Jesus himself that said he was going to rise from the grave. And how would that do with them and the Jews that they were trying to keep peace with? If the Jews had taken Jesus, what good would that do them? Again, it would make them look bad um, because Jesus' word would be true unless they had in mind to do something nefarious to Jesus' already brutalized dead body. If Jesus' disciples had taken Jesus. Well, wait a second. Wouldn't Peter and John and Mary, the key inner group, know this? Well, a couple different possibilities of what could have happened. But let's ask the next question. If you were there, if you were Mary, how would I have reacted to this? If you show up at the tomb expecting to find a body because you don't yet fully understand what the resurrection means and everything that Jesus had been saying, and all you expect is a dead body, and then the body's gone, where does your mind go? How do you react? And are you a little bit like Mary? I know all of us react different ways to conflict and to things that frighten us, but her reaction, even though she was there with at least four other women, is to run immediately to find Peter and John that these leaders of their disciple band, these men who she knew would want to know that their Lord whom they loved had been taken. And they don't know where they've put him. So from verse 2 to verse 3, we transition from considering what it was Mary Magdalene was startled about to the perspective of Peter. And that's your next point on your outline. Peter rushing in to see. Peter rushing in to see. Look at verse 3 there. 
So Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, you get the idea that John, um, from the Gospels, was a young man. And from the fact that he lived into the 90s, um, AD 90s, he was probably a teenager at this time. So maybe Peter was an older man. Maybe Peter was a stouter built man. I don't know. Years ago, when we ran Market to Market Relay, I will never forget something Dr. George Hansen said to me. I ran as hard as I could on this one stage, up and down these hills, and I was hoping that I would run about an eight-minute-per-mile pace. I think I ran a 7.57 pace. So I was really proud of myself that I had ran fast for me, and I am just bent over and about to die, and George walks by and says, You know, Aaron, you look like you would run faster. Thanks, George. I think... I mean, I guess by the way I'm built, I look like I'd be like, you know, a gazelle or something. I'm not a gazelle. I'm more like, you know, plodding along like a cow or something like that. Well, for whatever reason, John outran Peter. John gets there first, and let's look at what happens next. Verse 5. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Now, I've got to pull out an interesting word here. The word used for look here is blepo. It's a word in Greek that means he just glanced. So he gets there first. He looks in the empty tomb, but he's just, he sees it for a split second. And then does he turn around to see Peter coming towards him or look for reassurance or look at the ladies that are still there? Scripture doesn't tell us. We just know based on the Greek word that he just glanced in the tomb. So let's ask our first question of the second point. What did they find odd? What did they find there that was odd? What was it about it that caused him only to glance in it? Look at verse 7. Well, the end of verse 6. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself separate from the linen. Let's talk about that again. In This gospel, John chapter 11, when Lazarus, Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb, he's bound hand and feet. It was the traditional burial custom of the Jewish people to wrap folks almost like a mummy. They did not embalm them, but then you heard me talk about last week with aloes and spices to keep the smell down and help preserve the body a little bit, to wrap them. But they only wrapped them up to the top of their shoulders. There's a word used, a special Greek word, uh, sodoron, for a cloth, we might call it a handkerchief, that will be laid over the dead person's body from the top of their shoulders to their face. Now, this somewhat defeats the Shroud of Turin theory because it's not a single piece that went over his entire body, but wrapped around all the way up so that you would not be able to move, so that Lazarus would have to hop out of the tomb or do a little walk like this. But it also explains where in the Gospel of Luke, the son of the widow at Nain, that Jesus pronounced him, you know, wake up, that he sat up and he could talk to them because the cloth came off of his face, but he was wrapped up. So all he could do was sit up. He couldn't, you know, pull his arms out and pull his legs out and walk. So this is what they find in the tomb are the strips of cloth laying there with no body in them. And then the handkerchief that had been on Jesus' head, here we go, here's my handkerchief, folded up neatly and sat there. 
something's not right here. You could see where it was that John would just glance in very quickly and come out. Because it was odd, it was not right, it was not what you would expect to find if there had in fact been grave robbers. Grave robbers would have just taken the whole body, right? we got to get this guy out of here. And they're not going to unwrap him and leave the cloth there, and they're not going to fold up this thing or anything like that. They are hitting the road. So just the very fact that John's reaction shows that. But let's go back to the second question there. How did Peter react? The second question there is, how did Peter react? Look at verse 6. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. God bless Peter. True to his nature, he's impetuous, he's going to rush ahead. You've heard that cliche, right, that fools rush in where angels fear to tread? Well, Peter's the guy that's always there first holding the door for the fools, right? Hey, guys, I've already checked it out. You're not going to believe what happened. I mean, this is Peter's nature, right? So Peter just barges right into the tomb. Now, remember my description of what was commonly of those tombs in that day. There'd be a small opening carved two by two foot, maybe a little taller. And then you'd go in through that opening, then a chamber that might be six foot by seven feet, deep, wide, and everything like that, with a little ledge laid on it. So Peter goes in there, and there's some morning light, or maybe they have candles. I don't know, but one way or the other, he goes in. And what does he see? We already read that at the end of verse 6. The strips of linen lying there. But there's a different word here. A different word for Peter in the end of verse 6. The Greek word there when it says he saw the strips of linen lying there is the word theoreo. It's actually spelled like the oreo if you want to write it down. The oreo, but it's theoreo. And theoreo is where we get our English word theata from. And it's not that Peter was acting, but it means that he looked intently, that he studied it. So Peter, although he gets there second, he barges in and he stops presumptively and takes in the scene. Like, these are here, but they're not, they just, like the body went and then the cloth is folded up here and he's absorbing it. Like when you go to the theater, you're just sitting there watching what's going on on the stage and you're trying to figure out and follow the story. Peter's absorbing it. So it's a different word than the quick glance of John and it's different on purpose. We're going to see that come around here in a minute. Let's get to your third question there. What would I do in this situation? What would I do? I mean, would you be John? Quick glance and, huh? or would you be Peter? I'm barging right in and I want to, whoa. Trying to make sense of the thing. Or would you be the person on the outside going, I'm not going in there. Those guys can go in there. Or would you be the one that stayed at home because, uh, yeah, uh, no, I'm not messing with the Romans that are guarding that place. We all have our different reactions. But they take a look. They look in their own way. So we've seen Mary and her initial reaction. We've seen Peter Barging in, taking account, pondering. Let's move ahead to the third person in this vignette, and that's John. John is believing without seeing. Believing without seeing. Well, he says he saw, but we'll explain what I mean here in a minute. Verse 8. Look back at your Bible. It says, finally the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, 
also went inside. So I don't know if Peter's like, dude, John, you got to get in here. Did you look at this already? Did you see this, that the strips are still there and the cloth is over here, but it's folded up? Somebody didn't rob this tomb. They wouldn't have robbed it and left it like this. So John comes in. And what does it say there? He saw and believed. That's verse 8. Now John, who's writing the gospel, inserts what we call a parenthetical statement. And thankfully, the people who publish our Bibles put it in parentheses, which is verse 9. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So John is saying at that moment when they were there, they didn't understand that. But look at what it says of him just before that. Those four words, he saw and believed. What did he see? He saw empty grave clothes and a folded napkin. And it was what he did not see, the body of Jesus, that caused him to believe. It was what wasn't in his sight that caused him to believe. Because then where their minds had been racing of who had stolen Jesus and what had happened to Jesus and who would do this, now his mind must be racing back to, he's not here and his body is not robbed because I see how the cloths are. Therefore, he must have rose from the grave. Therefore, everything he said must be true. Therefore, he is the Son of God. And everything in John's mind begins ticking, one after the other. It's what he observed from the situation. Your first question there is, how did John observe the situation? And that's where we come into this word. In verse 8, where it says he saw and believed, it's a third Greek word. Remember the first one in verse 5, John went in and he glanced at the tomb and he came out. The second word used of Peter in verse 3 is spelled like the Oreo, but it's the Oreo, meaning he went and he went, Whoa, he took it all in, right? But the third word for see used in this passage in verse 8, also of John, orao, O-R-A, not Oreo, but O-R-A, orao means to see and understand. So when he went back in the tomb, and when he went back in with Peter beside him going, whoa, he stood there and he understood that Jesus wasn't there. And that's why he believed. He believed Jesus was God's son. He believed Jesus had resurrected from the grave because Jesus' body was not there. What is it that's not in your life that causes you to believe in Jesus? What is it that used to be in your life in the past that causes you to believe in Jesus in the present? Maybe it is your past. Maybe it is your sin. Maybe it is your habits, your old way, your unforgiveness, your bitterness, your anger, your addictions. Those things that Jesus has helped you overcome that because you don't see them in your life anymore, you know that He is God. And you know that He has saved you. That's that question. The second question there is what's unique about his reaction? I think what's unique about his reaction is what I've just been talking about, that he was believing without seeing. That what he saw, nobody gave him evidence of who Jesus was for everybody. So your final question asks you, 
what do I believe about Jesus? Not just what did you learn today from Pastor Aaron's sermon. Oh, that was really cool. How there are three different Greek words, you know, the glance and the study and the, whoa, understand. Or anything like that. But what do you personally believe about Jesus? Who he is and what he's done and what the Bible has said. Back over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 through 27. Listen with me. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through one man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Hallelujah. But each in his own turn... Christ the firstfruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Jesus is alive. And a living Jesus is an all-powerful Jesus. A living Jesus is an all-present Jesus. A living Jesus gives us life now. A living Jesus gives us life for eternity. A living Jesus gives us victory. Amen. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you that Jesus is alive. And that he is not in the tomb. And that just as John and Peter entered that tomb first and saw what was not there to convince them that they might believe that Jesus, your son, is the Christ. We too can believe. And that there is something special about believing without seeing And that it is John who was the first and only person recorded in Scripture that believed that Jesus was your son without seeing his resurrected body. God, make us not unlike John, that we have not seen the physically resurrected Jesus, but we too can be like John by believing that he is your son. Our prayer is for anyone here who's never trusted Christ as their Savior, that they might do that today and they would believe that Jesus is your son and they would accept him to be their personal Savior and Lord. And for those of us that are believers in Jesus, whatever it is we need to confess or surrender or do, that we would be willingly obedient today and love for you. We thank you, God, for everything we've learned this morning by your word. And we pray now that we would be obedient in Jesus' name. Amen.